Do you remember the assurance that you had on September 10th, 2001? In many ways, it was a false assurance uh, that cockpit doors could remain unlocked, that we didn't need to check people's pockets and purses for box openers and small blades, that, that your fellow passengers on the plane would never ever think about trying to commit mass murder and turn an airplane into a missile. We lived with a lot of false assurances on September 10th, 2001. And those false assurances showed themselves for what they were on September 11th. On September 12th, 20 years ago today, we lived with a sober reality. Uh, I can remember uh, being in my office in the Chicago area and, and no planes were allowed in the sky during those few days. And, and um, it must have been a military jet that had passed over and broken the sound barrier because a huge boom went out uh, over the sky. Both me and the, my fellow pastor walked out of the church and we were like, what in the world was that? That, that, do you remember that sober reality that, that any shaking, any, any loud noise was kind of like, what, what is happening now? It shook us out of a false assurance. Uh, not to get uh, too, too uh, uh, negative or even political here, but we, we've been given a lot of thin assurances recently. Afghanistan is no longer an incubator for terrorism. The Taliban is not going to take over Afghanistan. It's going to take months for the Taliban to get to Kabul. This is not going to be anything like the end of the Vietnam War, like Saigon. We, we will not leave Afghanistan until all Americans and our allies are evacuated. And we're confident the Taliban is going to work with us in the future. In some ways, uh, some of our young people don't necessarily recall a common scene in the Peanuts cartoon in which Lucy would be holding a football and would reassure over and over again to Charlie Brown, I'm not going to pull this football out just before you kick it. I don't think it ever happened once that Lucy didn't pull the football out before Charlie Brown went to kick that football. It's a false assurance. It's like a, it, it being assured by an insurance company. Don't worry, we have got your back. No matter what happens, we are going to take care of you. And then accidentally you getting an, a memo in the mail that they never meant for you to get, you know, that's saying... Um, Hey, by the way, don't pay out for claims unless you absolutely have to. What, what sort of assurance would that be worth? Is when you would recognize it as a false insurance. Assurance is only helpful if you can trust it, for sure. Let me ask you, in what do you put your hope for the future? What gives you assurance? In what are you placing your hope 
Hope comes up several times in the letter to the Hebrews. And ultimately that hope is Christ. As we'll see um, in, in uh, chapter f- uh, 4, as we've seen in chapter 4, as we see in chapter 6, it talks about that we have something that is so assuring that it's called an anchor for our soul. An anchor that doesn't move. And it describes this hope as being something that has passed through the heavens. But that hope is a person, and it is Jesus Christ. He is the anchor for our soul, the great assurance. You can trust the assurance of salvation that comes from God. After warning the readers that many can feel a false assurance and then fall away, we read in verse 9 through 12 of chapter 6 where we are here in Hebrews. Though we speak in this way about this false assurance that that someone can have and, and then fall away, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith And patience inherit the promises. You know, we we see in in these verses uh, something that could be misunderstood, misinterpreted. and, And it's a good opportunity for us to be reminded of the importance of Bible study. Some of the values of Bible study. Looking a little deeper than just just reading the Bible for itself. And and the the importance of Bible study on on the most basic level is to help us clarify our assumptions, to catch misinterpretations, to look at a passage and say, well, I'm assuming this means this, but but maybe what does the context show me? What what does this term actually mean? Uh, For example, read this from a, a Catholic faith perspective. Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. You, you can read verse 9 and you could, read, you could hear a works-based salvation in that, couldn't you? That, that God is not unjust. He sees your works. He sees your love and how you serve the saints. And of course, when you have a works-based salvation idea, you end up with this hierarchy of the saints. Who has worked more? Who has done more? Who is loved more by God? Who is saved more by God? And so you end up with these, your definition of saints is these people that are are otherworldly. These people that actually only the church itself has said, that is a saint. And so read this from a Catholic perspective. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints 
as you do. Can you see how that can be open for misinterpretation? That's why one of the most important, simple aspects, simple reasons for Bible study is to clarify your assumptions, to, to, to better understand what misinterpretations could be made here. So what is being explained? Well, well verse 9 tells us it's things that belong to salvation. We're not being told how to be saved. We're being told what to expect to come along with our salvation. What to expect to be there as a part of us having a relationship with God. And we've talked about it. We, we should expect a persevering faith to be a part of saving faith. He's talking here about present reward, the assurance of salvation that God gives. Now, as we'll see in, in the following verse, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. That is a reward from God as a part of our relationship with Him as we see that develop in us as we serve Him by serving others. He also talks about the future reward that is ours in our relationship with God. Though, as he talks about those who through faith and patience inherit the promise we see in verse 12. He's talking about an eternal reward that comes with our serving the Lord as a part of our relationship with Him, that full experience of God's promised presence. So the context helps us to see that he's talking about blessings that come as a part of a saving relationship with God. He's not talking about how to earn a relationship with God. But I thought that's a good example to show you the, the importance and the simple purpose of Bible study. Clarifying our assumptions, clearing up possible misinterpretations. So from the context, we know this statement in verse 10 is being made to those that the reader is certain are saved. He says, we, we, we know of, we, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And we, we see from the context that, that he is talking about the rewarding aspects of their faithfulness to the Lord. These things that belong to salvation are assuring of our salvation in Christ. So as a part of pursuing real assurance, I encourage you, rest in God's gracious promises. Rest in God's gracious promises. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Expect a persevering faith. Expect an assurance of salvation. This, this is contrasted with the fruitlessness of verses 7 and 8. And the falling away and the apostasy that's described of those that may feel like they're saved, but they're not truly saved from verses 4 through 6. That's what this is contrasted with. Those don't accompany salvation. Better things accompany salvation. A persevering faith, as I mentioned. An assurance of salvation, as we see in verse 11. Trusting God's promises, as we see in verse 12. And what, what about this explanation for? He's saying, for God. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and, and, and the love 
God's justice is the same as his righteousness. God always does what is right. If we were looking at this from a works-based salvation perspective, we would understand this as God grants salvation because of our love, because of our good works. But he's speaking of trusting in God's grace for assurance and attaining his promises. Those who walk with God in love and good works are blessed with assurance. Those better things that come with salvation. The things that belong to salvation include also our future good works, which verify our salvation. Ephesians 2.10 talks about this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this verse comes on the heels of him saying, it is by grace you are saved through faith, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. And goes on to say, but we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Or as James 2.26 tells us, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. There's no faith there if there's no works that flow from that faith, that flow from that saving faith. Or as John Piper says, the writer really believes that they have salvation and therefore will have the things that always accompany salvation, persevering faith and fruitfulness, end quote. So rest in God's gracious promises as you pursue his glory. He he describes this as uh, that God doesn't overlook. He blesses your work and the love that you have shown for his name. That's key here. And actually, when he says for his name, it's literally to his name, toward his name. Facing who he is, eyes full attention on God and his character and our relationship with him as we do what we do for his glory. The psalmist understood this, God's concern for his character, for his glory. You might recall from Psalm 23, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Psalm 25, verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Psalm 143, verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness bring my soul out of trouble. God is about God's glory. Praise God that he is. Praise God that he is not about what he wants, what we want him to be about. We want him to be about us. But if God were about us, guess what? God would be an idolater. He would have a God above himself. And if that were to happen, the whole world would come unhinged. Satan would win. And and I can't imagine a world where Satan ultimately wins. God has no other God before himself. He is about his name, which means he is about his character. He is about his glory. 
And when he remakes us into his image, when we are regenerated, reborn, we become about his name. Little by little, maybe. More and more. But that is what our life is to be about. That's why it says, he does not overlook your work and the love that you have shown for, toward his name. This is God-centered theology. God rightly rewards good works that flow from a love for his name, his character, his glory. It is, the very, it is very different from a man-centered theology where we think God is going to give you credit for everything you do. And then you just get more stuff. Guess what you're actually worshiping in that situation? You're worshiping yourself and you're worshiping the stuff. That's not what God's about. So rest in God's gracious promises as you pursue his glory through serving one another. You see the relationship there? Your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. Martin Luther said this, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. The realm in which we can show love and work for God's glory is in our relationship with one another. We'll read about the work that these believers uh, were, uh, had made and, and the efforts that they were making for their fellow Christians in Hebrews 10, where he says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that your, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You were assured that my life is not bound up in this world, so I can lose it all and yet gain even more. It's an example of this is, was, was uh, written in, in A.D. 70, about 130 years after this is written. Dionysius, the, a pastor in Corinth, writes in his letter to Soter, a pastor in Rome, and he says, This has been your custom from the beginning to do good in manifold ways to all the brothers and to send contributions to the many churches in every city, in some places relieving the poverty of the needy and ministering to the brothers in the mines. End quote. Don't miss the relationship between these phrases. God values our work and the love that you have shown for his name that we are doing in serving one another and other believers around the world. Service to one another out of a love and devotion to God is evidence of our salvation. Or as the New Testament commentary tells us, it is the writer's conviction that these actions showed that God's grace is still active among them. You know, we pastors as well as anybody else, we can be guilty of, of maybe either being like, you know what, I'd be happy if my whole life was just me and God's word. You know, we make, you know, we can joke and say ministry would be fantastic if it weren't for people. You know, that that's a kind of tongue in cheek. 
um, you know, we can be all about the glory of God, and, or any of us can be, and miss the fact that the greatest commandment was answered in two commandments. Love God and love people. Love God with all of yourself and love people more than you love yourself. We can also make the mistake of thinking, you know what, I don't need all that doctrine stuff. I don't need that theology. I just need, I just need to love people. But it's about his name, his glory, who he is as we serve and love one another. Loving him and loving others. You know, it reminded me of uh, this, this idea that we look at uh, every, every so often of how basically I believe that the greatest battle that is in existence since the beginning of time is whether or not God is going to get the worship that he deserves from the people that he created. And his enemy has one goal, and that is to divert worship to other things. And we can be so tempted to set our hearts. Our, our hearts, typically, we wake up in the morning and our hearts are set on serving ourselves. And when they are set on serving ourselves, this is the way we were made to be. But, but when we put that crown on ourselves, then rather than treating everything that we have and do as an offering of worship to the Lord, we treat everything and everyone like a vending machine. Like what I have, I have in order to plug into people or in order to plug into this situation, plug into my job so that I'll get what it is that I think I need. But repentance for us is to realize, you know what, Lord? I am serving myself. I am sitting on the throne of my heart. I am living with this delusional idea that I am God of my world. And I repent, Lord. Set my heart again to serving you. And then the opportunity is for the glory of his name, we can do what we do as an offering of worship on his altar for his glory. You know, the goal of, of our work as a church is my eyes on the Lord, your eyes on the Lord. For your ministry at the fall festival, your eyes on the Lord, hopefully that person putting their eyes on the Lord. So that we can grow closer to the Lord. Some of you guys that, that understand this as a part of marriage, it's like that triangle idea. That, that you're here, your spouse is here, and God is here. And as you both have your eyes on the Lord, as you both grow closer to the Lord, guess what? You grow closer to each other. You better serve one another. You better love one another. As your eyes, your glory, your attention... Is on the Lord in His name and His glory. God's blessings include obtaining all of God's covenant promises, as we'll see in verse 12, and specifically include assurance of salvation, as we'll see in verse 11. And a relationship with God is evident in the love that you have for His glory, which is displayed in your serving His people. And small groups is a fantastic opportunity for that. That's one of the reasons why that's what we're sold out on. That's what, if in terms of what we have chosen to put our energy into, as far as, um, you know, 
our ministry to one another as a church body is mainly in small groups because there's that opportunity. Let's grow in our love and our devotion to the Lord and let's be serving one another at the same time. It's not just one or the other. And in all of this, God's justice, His righteousness will not overlook your devotion with regard to providing. His providing you with assurance of your eternal reward. Imagine it's like we are moving across a desert, moving toward the paradise of God's presence. We are under the, the heat and the pressure and, and the, the discomfort of, of the world, our flesh, and the devil, which is constantly trying to slow us down, constantly trying to get us to turn back, constantly trying to get our eyes off of that destination. And we're fueled by a love and a hope for that destination of this unimaginable paradise of God's presence. We join in encouraging one another on, in our trek. And, and every encouragement is fueled by that future hope and the intended to press others on toward that future hope. How, how much value is there to looking at someone and saying, hey, isn't this desert great? You, be, you get to be with me. It's not going to last very long. But we put our attention on that final destination. That, that presence that we get to experience. I was reminded again, visiting with the Straters, that <clears throat> death is a doorway. It's a doorway into, for, for those who know the Lord is our Savior, it is a doorway into the brightest, most glorious existence and right now we walk in a dark, dark world. But like light shining through that doorway, that, that, that we get a glimpse of it in this darkness that we're in, that, that we get to, to, to uh, see a, 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 a shimmer that's cast a path from that final room into this one, that's what we live by. And just as much as we get to walk in that light that's shining through that door, we get to walk with God now. The, the, the reward of following God is His presence and the assurance that we will have His unfettered presence one day. We're looking ahead to God's presence, believing that all we need will be provided for us to get there. And in the meantime, we keep on serving one another, even in the smallest ways. God does not overlook the encouraging note that you will write, even in the form of a text. God does not overlook the call you make. God does not overlook the challenge that you give out Concern, sharing concern for your brother or your sister in Christ. God does not overlook when you turn the other cheek and accept a hurtful comment. God does not overlook the kindness that you give that goes unreturned. 
God remembers every service that is done out of love for who he is. So don't slow in loving one another. Or pick up your basin and your towel again and serve one another. God's righteousness keeps him from overlooking every act of kindness. And you only have so many days on this earth to do them. Well, as a second part of our pursuing real assurance, this is quicker, I I encourage you to pursue a hope in Christ alone. We read, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish. What a great word. But imitators of those who, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. There's times when the writer to the Hebrews here seems like he restates the same thing. But he's, he's changing the subject a little bit. He's changing the focus a little bit. He does this a few times where you notice he says, but our desire is that each one of you. He's like, our desire is for 100% experience of this. 100% of you shifting from, from a hope through, for a, 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 to a 100% transformation of all the readers this is a common shift from, from that, that I've seen from believer do this to we hope all of you will do this. We, we've seen this in Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 13, where he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Or in Hebrews 4.1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Oh, Hebrews 4.11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Remember, there, there is a broad audience to this letter, but, but the, the writer is not insensitive to the fact that many of those who are reading this letter are on the fence as far as Christ goes. And so he's, he's praying and he's explaining that we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance. In other words, to search your heart, to be diligent, to look and to say, is, is God's Spirit testifying to my spirit that I am a child of God? He says, it's our desire that not one of you should slip into eternity. Just assuming. Well, I sat in that seat. Well, I did those things. Well, I drank that juice. I, I ate that bread. It seems to me that this is another call to aspire to leave no one behind in immaturity or even unsaved, at least without challenging them to trust in Christ. Full assurance to the end. This is not, since you prayed this prayer, don't ever doubt it. Okay, go in your backyard and drive this stick into the ground and say, I prayed that prayer. Therefore, I know I'm saved. No, that is not what Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us in Hebrews, I'm sorry, Romans 8.16, God's Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. You know why? Because it's a relationship we step into. I mean, does anybody get married 
and then go their separate ways and be like, well, at least I know I'm married. I have this certificate. No. They know they're married because they wake up every morning. They're like, there they are. This is not responding to information, this full assurance to the end. This is responding to a personal invitation of relationship. This is a relationship with God that stands the test of time till we pass into his presence, or as he he says, full assurance of hope until the end. Pursue a hope in Christ alone so that you will be responsive. When he says, so that you may not be sluggish, we've seen this word before, just not this English word. The, the, the Greek word that's used here is, was used earlier in chapter 5 where he says, about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing or sluggish, unresponsive. I don't have any sympathy for a man that says, I have all these doubts, but I'm sorry, I just don't like to read. I think doubts, guys, should get us past our dislike of reading. Listen to it on a tape, a CD, on your phone. Yeah, that's where it is now. <laughs> I wish I was closer to the Lord, but I just, I just don't get anything out of sermons. That's sluggishness. Being dull of hearing, being unresponsive, that's not a good sign. You're being warned that being dull of hearing or sluggishness is a you problem. Okay? I love you, so I'm telling you that. Pursue a hope in Christ alone so that you will be responsive as we all follow Christ together. We're called to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We'll ultimately see the best examples of this in chapter 11, the hall of faith. And so we should stay focused to the end of our lives on glorifying God by serving his people. This gives us complete assurance of God's future blessing and our assurance as we follow in the footsteps of other saints who have gone on to receive the full blessing of God's presence. You know, Tom is a great example of this. Someone who loved God's people out of a love for God's glory. Having a full assurance of hope until the end. Those of us from the men's Bible study, we can attest to that. Tom's love for the Lord. Tom's full assurance of hope until the end. Someone who through faith and patience has inherited the promises. Think of the value as, as in, with this idea of, of moving across this desert that we are in toward this paradise that we have been promised. With our eyes focused on that paradise, think of the value of each traveler tasting the perfect water from that oasis destination, from that paradise destination, having a canteen for themselves that when they they wonder, they take a sip again and they're reminded. Encouraging 
or, or, or for those who are doubting the existence of that paradise destination and we realize they don't have a canteen. You know, we can give them some sips of our own, but really what we're telling them is, you need to go see the trail master. You need to get a canteen for yourself. You need to find that assurance from our leader, from our savior. And we're encouraged as we are recalling those that we've been told about how they are already enjoying that paradise. Every testimony my friend, it is a story of how the gospel has been passed down from one person to another ever since Jesus gave it to his disciples to share it with others. And we follow in the footsteps of those who have died with a world shaking around them, yet a smile on their face. Those who have died maybe with very little in the bank, and a measureless heavenly retirement account. How do you rate the assurance of your salvation? Is God's Spirit testifying to your spirit that you are His child? Do you sense His call to love His glory and to love others? Do you sense His pleasure when you do this? Maybe the idea of loving others for the sake of God's glory, it's new for you. Put your eyes on God with your service and listen for his affirming assurances. Is your trust in God for salvation anything but a relationship? That's not a good sign. Is it just a matter of facts that you've decided to agree with? That you would answer correctly on a test? Or is he affirming them, saying, I'm here. I saw you do that. I'm convicting you. I'm comforting you. I'm assuring you. That's what we should be looking for. That's what we can have. I remember um, someone asked a a preacher that I I really uh, respect. They asked him, They said something to the extent of when when someone is praying to receive Christ as their Savior, but they don't feel like his his assuring presence, they don't sense his presence in their life, what what should they be doing? He said, keep doing it until they do. That's not a bad thing, folks. We don't stand on some decision we made. We don't stand on some uh, position we took. We stand on the assuring presence of God in our life. And it's the kind that stands firm until the end. You know, when we were praying with uh, the praise team up here this morning, something came out of my mouth that just like hit me like a ton of bricks as soon as I said it. How many times are we told in the Psalms that God is our strong tower? Did you know the designer of the World Trade Center actually said in an interview, and we don't fault anybody for trusting in a building like that, but he actually said in in an interview, this building is built so strong that it would withstand if an airplane were to run into it. It's just about one of the, the 
strongest towers that we could build. It's got to be pretty strong to go that high. But it didn't hold up. God is our strong tower. He is our refuge. When we run to him for salvation, when we run to him over and over again, with the trials and the challenges that we face, we can trust him. We can rest in him. 50,000 people were resting in that tower. Thankfully, not nearly that many died on September 11th. Billions of people over the course of this world, those that have already inherited the promises, have rested in Christ. And he has proved over the millennia to be faithful, to be strong, to be a refuge. And you can rest in him too. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your presence. Thank you so much for the things that belong to salvation. You're shaping us. You're making us to where we are learning to, to keep our eyes on you, even as we serve others. We're learning to not make idols out of other people or, or to serve ourselves with our lives. Thank you for your assurance as you teach us, as you guide us, as you remind us of the paradise that we are moving toward, that paradise of your presence. Father, thank you that you are our strong tower. You are our refuge. Lord God, I pray that we would find our home in you for your glory and for the good of those that we love in obedience to you. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.